0: Good morning. Good morning. Stick out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 6. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. So we'll start by reading the passage. This is the word that God has for you this morning. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you po- who are poor, for yours But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And Father, we come to you again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only righteousness before a holy God. We want to acknowledge, even as we pray now, that apart from you we can do nothing. That unless the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, unless you make the seed of your word fall on good soil, all of this will profit us nothing. And So we ask that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that each of us saints gathered here today would I seek to align our lives more closely with your word, by your grace. And we pray for all who are with us this morning who do not know you, who remain under judgment, that you would grant them faith and repentance and salvation today, that they might know what it is to be blessed in you. We ask that you would grant me clarity and conviction that you might use my words as the means to speak to your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to kind of a transition in our study of this gospel. Uh, All the way from the middle of chapter four, right? We've been covering these action-packed stories, one after the other. We've got exorcisms, and we've got healings, and we've got callings and controversies. Now, within those narratives, there's been a lot of references to Jesus' teaching and preaching. And so, just look in your Bibles real quick. We'll take a quick stroll through these chapters. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 31, he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Chapter 4, verse 44, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Chapter 5, verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Chapter 5, verse 17, on one of those days as he was teaching... Chapter 6, verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And so we've seen a lot of references to Jesus' teaching. And we know what he was teaching about, because in chapter 4, verse 43, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. But in terms of the actual content of his teaching— Well, we really haven't seen any of that since the middle of chapter 4 when he was preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. But now starting in the middle of our passage today, we have this extended record of Jesus' teaching. And so we've been hearing a lot about Christ's teaching and preaching, but now Luke gives us exactly what he was preaching and teaching about. But before we get to the sermon, 1st Luke gives us a little bit of context Look at verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place. Now you're just jumping into that verse, verse 17, you've got a bunch of questions in your head, right? Where's he coming down from? Who is the them that he's coming down with? And so remember what we've been talking about the last two Sundays, how Jesus chose the disciples, how he chose the apostles, Uh, from the larger group of disciples, right? These 12 men who were going to commit their lives to him and who would be Jesus' specially designated representatives to preach the gospel and do miracles and even carry on the work after he's gone. Remember verse 12? Jesus went up on a mountain and he pulls an all-nighter praying and then he chooses from his disciples the 12, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, his brother John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. Now, with that selection having taken place, he comes down with them. Right, and so Jesus and his disciples, they're coming down from the mountain, and they're coming onto some level place. And it's there that he's met by this great crowd. And so now it's not just the disciples. It's also a great multitude of people that's joining him there, And look at how Luke draws special attention to the fact that they are from all over the place. All Judea and Jerusalem. And so if you can kind of picture a map of uh, Israel at that time, Jerusalem would have been all the way in the south of Israel. But the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, that's to the northwest of Israel's territory. Uh, Now Tyre and Sidon are primarily Gentile cities, and so maybe Luke is telling us that amongst the crowd, they're not only Jews now, but they're also Gentiles. Or maybe Luke mentions these places to illustrate that people are coming from as far south as Jerusalem and as far north and west as Tyre and Sidon, just how expansive the range of the people is. Kind of like how we might say uh, from sea to shining sea, right? An expansive range. But either way, the people have come from far and wide, And yet they've come because Jesus can heal. Verse 19 brings attention to that. The power of the Holy Spirit upon him is going out from him and and, and he's healing people left and right. But did you notice that in verse 18, when he's talking about why these people are coming, Luke mentions first that they came to hear him. The priority of the teaching, the preaching of Jesus. And so we've had this kind of repeated emphasis emphasis in these chapters on the primacy of his preaching, of his teaching, of his word. And here we see that again. Right? They came to hear him. And this sermon that Luke records for us from verse 20 to the end of the chapter, that's what they got. Now, There's been a lot of discussion as to whether this sermon, uh, sometimes it's called the Sermon on the Plain, because verse 17 says that Jesus stood on this level place, well, is this Sermon on the Plain the same thing as the better-known Sermon on the Mount that Matthew records for us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7? If you compare the two, you'll notice some interesting similarities and some interesting differences. Right? Similarity-wise, well, both sermons begin with these Beatitudes. Uh, both accounts end with the wise and foolish builder. And they both kind of follow the jam- the. the, the the same general uh, train of thought. Uh, in both accounts, we're told that Jesus is primarily addressing his disciples. And uh, both accounts are followed shortly thereafter by this healing of the centurion's servant. But there's also some major differences. Matthew's sermon is almost three times as long. Matthew's sermon includes a lot of references to the law that Luke leaves out. Matthew tells us that Jesus went up on a mountain while Luke tells us that he stood on a level place. And then just focusing on the Beatitudes, right, the beginnings of the two sermons, because that's our text from Luke this morning, Matthew starts off with eight Beatitudes, eight blessed ours, but Luke only has four, which correspond to the first, the fourth, the second, and the eighth in Matthew's list. Luke throws in four woes, right? Woe to you that Matthew doesn't have And Matthew's Beatitudes are all in the third person, except the middle of the last one, he switches to the second person, right? Blessed are you. Uh, But Luke's Beatitudes, you'll notice, are all in the second person, right? From start to finish, blessed are you. Matthew's Beatitudes tend to be longer. And so, uh, blessed are you poor in Luke is blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew. Uh, Blessed are you who are hungry now in Luke is uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in Matthew. And so what's going on here? Well, they might be two records of the same occasion, uh, in which case the the level place uh, in Luke would be kind of this plateaued part of the mountain that Matthew's referring to, and Jesus very well may have said the same things in different ways, right? Just repeating himself with different emphases within the same sermon. And so Luke has one statement And then Matthew has another restatement. It's very clear either way, unless Jesus actually preached like five-minute-long sermons, unlikely. It's very clear either way that both Matthew and Luke are just kind of giving us a highlight reel, the, the first century equivalent of like a sermon jam. And so it's basically just a matter of which versions of what he said that they are including in their presentation. But it's also possible, I think more likely, that Jesus preached the same sermon on more than one occasion. On the same topic, but perhaps with different points of emphasis. And so it could be that Matthew and Luke are just recording for us two different occasions, two different times, in two different places, in which Jesus basically preached the same sermon. Think that's what's going on here? Can't be sure. What's this sermon about? Well, what Jesus is going to do here is he is going to present... Two groups of people. right? Those who are God's people and those who are not God's people. And that fits nicely into the flow of the narrative as we have it, as we've been looking at it. Because remember where we've been in the past few chapters. You've got these Pharisees and you've got these scribes and they have firmly established themselves as haters and opponents of Jesus. Right? They're trying to take him down. Right? They're plotting how they might destroy him. And now Jesus has just called to himself his disciples. Those 12 guys who, uh, save one, are going to be with him through the ups and the downs that they're going to endure. They are his most loyal followers. And so you've got Jesus' enemies, and you've got Jesus' disciples. right? Two groups of people who are emerging in this narrative. And so in this sermon, Jesus repeatedly splits people into these two groups. And so in the Beatitudes, right, there are those who are blessed, and then there are those who are under woe. Then verses 32 to 36, he's going to talk about love. This is how God's people love, and this is how the sinners of the world love, and he contrasts them. Then he's going to talk about trees. Verse 43, you've got the good tree, and you've got the bad tree. Good fruit, bad fruit. And then finally, at the end of the sermon, he's going to talk about two different houses with two different foundations and two different outcomes when the flood rises. And so at many points in this sermon, right? Jesus is juxtaposing God's people and not God's people. Disciples and those like them, and Pharisees and those like them. This is what saved people look like. This is what unsaved people look like. This is what God's Spirit works in the heart of a believer, a true child of God, in contrast with what's going on in the heart of an unbeliever, regardless of outward appearances. And the hearer, The reader for us, we're supposed to evaluate ourselves against this comparison. Am I with Jesus or am I against Jesus? Does my life align with the kingdom of God or is it in contrast to it? But That's no simple evaluation because this sermon, this sermon is really challenging. It completely goes against every natural human inclination there is. I mean, let's just consider the Beatitudes, right? Just look at the Beatitudes. You've got words like poor, hungry, weeping, and being hated on one side of the ledger. And you've got words like rich, full, laughing, and being spoken well of on the other side. And it's like, well, which would you choose? It seems like a no-brainer, right? We'd want this side, but Jesus flips the values of the world on their head. And so this sermon is challenging to, like, any audience in human history, but it would have been especially challenging, shocking, to a first-century Jewish audience, because remember, in large part, they were expecting a political, earthly messiah— They're hoping for a Messiah to come and powerfully overthrow the Romans and free them from occupation. And then once he comes, he's going to bring all of these material blessings that we currently lack. And so we're not going to have to be poor. And we're not going to have to be hungry. And we're not going to have to weep anymore. And we're not going to be overlooked and despised anymore once Messiah comes. And yet here's this man claiming to be the Messiah— And doing all of the things, the signs, the miracles that you would expect the Messiah to do. And yet he's turning all of these expectations of the Messiah and his kingdom completely upside down. And so Jesus has already done a bunch of things. He said a bunch of things that have kind of really rankled the spiritual establishment, uh, the religious establishment of that day. But the things that he's going to talk about here, like this is bigger than just how to observe the Sabbath or what kind of people you fellowship with or principles of fasting. This is your entire worldview. This is what it looks like to be right with God. And that's what he's completely redefining here. Which means that what was true of the first century hearers of this sermon, that's true for us as well. Right? This is shocking, this is counterintuitive, and God must give us ears to hear or none of this is going to make any sense. Look at how Jesus makes that plain. Look at verse 27. He's just finished giving the Beatitudes. He's about to say something that's even more radical, I think, in terms of loving your enemies. But look at what he says first. He says, I say to you who hear. Right? Like, I'm talking to you who have been given ears to hear. Because these teachings are so foreign to fallen human nature that God has to do a regenerating work in the heart, in our dead hearts, for this to actually become our heart's desires. Like, this is not stuff that if you just sit there and you think hard enough, you're going to be able to grasp it. No, God has to grant eyes to see this because to natural man, all of this is just straight up foolishness. So now let's look at the first seven verses of this sermon. The Beatitudes, and that's just a fancy word for blessings, and the woes. you got four Beatitudes, and you've got four woes. A Beatitude, right, a blessed, you can think a favored or, or even happy, it's a word that refers to like this deep-seated joy from God that's not tied to and tethered to the ups and downs of his life, but it's this God-given contentment and satisfaction that kind of transcends your circumstances and your feelings. Because we're going to see the circumstances in which Jesus declares someone to be blessed in these beatitudes, they're all what we would consider typically to be negative and unpleasant and unhappy things. But Jesus says, blessed are those kinds of people. And woe, that's just a word we don't use anymore. We might say, whoa, that's expensive, but that's a different kind of woe, right? This is W-O-E, woe. This is a a condemnation. This is uh, the terribleness of the impending judgment of God that is on someone. And you notice that if you look at the sermon as a whole, the Beatitudes as a whole, that the woes correspond directly one-to-one with the blessings. So you look at the first blessing, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Well, that's the exact opposite of the first woe, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Same thing for the second, third, and fourth pairs. So I think the easiest way to go through these is to just take each pair, right, one at a time, and just look at each blessing and corresponding woe together. So first, pair number one, poor and rich. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So there's a the big question. What does Jesus mean by blessed are you who are poor, and woe to you who are rich? Is he just talking about literal financial poverty and literal financial riches? Like, blessed are you if your net worth is uh, above, uh, sorry, below X, but uh, woe to you if you come above that threshold. My short answer to the question is no. But, okay, you're going to have to kind of put on your thinking caps here to, to follow this argument, because I'm going to give you four arguments as to ho- that will hopefully work together and convince you as to why this has to be referring to more than just physical, economic, literal poverty and riches. And if you get this, right, you're kind of set for the rest of the sermon, right? So it's all downhill from here, but you've got to kind of put in the work up front. So why do I think that blessed are you who are poor and woe to you who are rich? Why does it have to have a spiritual dimension in addition to just literal physical poverty? First, if these are absolute literal physical statements, the financially poor are blessed and the financially rich are under woe, Blessing and woe are strictly determined by economic indicators. Well, that makes the gospel rather meaningless. Like, if the way to be right with God is just to be poor, well, friends, that's not the gospel. And if that's true, Abraham and David and Job, right, those guys are in a lot of trouble. No, the gospel is about Jesus, right? The the poor person who rejects Jesus is going to end up in the same hell as the rich person who rejects Jesus, and the rich person who trusts Jesus is going to end up in the same heaven as the poor person who trusts Jesus. And taking this just as literal economic statements, well, that can lead to errant teachings about the mission of Jesus. That is, well, his mission was to liberate the poor and overturn economic oppression. But it was Jesus who said, the poor you will have with you always— that's not why he came. He came to seek and save the lost. The second, we should realize that these blessings and woes, they come as a package. So these are not four separate statements about four different types of individuals who are blessed. But they all kind of work together to paint one picture. So if you look at the fourth beatitude, it's explicit about the spiritual nature of the sufferings and the lack that's implied in the first three. Blessed are you when people hate you on account of the Son of Man. And so we should similarly view the other Beatitudes through that same spiritual lens. Same thing for the woes. Look at how the fourth woe, that person is compared to a false prophet. So that's like the ultimate in spiritual wickedness. And so again, we should expect at least some spiritual dimension in the other characteristics of being rich and full and laughing that bring upon the same woe. A third argument as to why I think, blessed are you who are poor, has to refer to more than just literal physical poverty. Well, think back to Jesus' sermon from Luke chapter 4 that he gave at Nazareth. Remember, he quotes Isaiah 61. He tells the people that he is the promised suffering servant. Look at what he says in verses 17 and 18. Uh, the scroll, of the prophet Isaiah, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." Now, if you look at the other descriptions in that passage of who this gospel message is for—the captives, the blind—it's clear that he's talking in spiritual metaphors, and so we should expect. That poor is being used in the same sense here. Fourth and finally, okay, the scriptures use economic poverty as a picture of spiritual poverty. And that's fitting because oftentimes the two are linked together, right? So you, you have your Abrahams and your Davids and your Jobs, but for the most part, God's people are drawn from the poor and the weak, not the rich and the powerful. As Paul says, God chooses what is low and despised and weak in the world so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And these disciples of Jesus, right, the ones to whom he's speaking here, well, they're mostly drawn from the poor of society. Not entirely, but mostly. And so the word poor, that terminology poor, is used throughout the scriptures as a general term to describe God's people. So for example, look at Proverbs 16, 19. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. So you see that the antithesis, the opposite of poor, is not the rich. It's the proud. And so you see how economic poverty there is used as a picture of spiritual poverty, humility. And you'll see the Psalms repeatedly refer to to the righteous and godly person as being poor and needy. One example is Psalm 40, verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy. Describing the righteous person. But the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay oh my God. So, I add up those four arguments. Right? And the, the point I'm trying to make here is blessed are you who are poor. That is primarily... A spiritual statement. Matthew captures it as blessed are the poor in spirit. And so this is referring to those who realize that they're spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer to God. They have nothing to bring to God in terms of merit or righteousness or anything like that, that no works of theirs could possibly please God and make them right with him and so people like this just wholly and humbly cling to God, lean on God's grace and his mercy. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's that kind of person, the poor, who has truly humbled himself in coming to Christ in full dependence, in spiritual poverty, often intertwined with physical poverty, Right? that's the person who finds himself blessed And so Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. So these would have been words of comfort, words of encouragement to the weary child of God. The one who realizes his spiritual need, the one who comes to God with nothing, but they find that their heavenly father is this lavish giver of grace. Grace upon grace, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so they receive a kingdom, they are given a kingdom that they could never achieve on their own merit, that they could never achieve, that they could never earn. But God gives it to them as a free gift because of the humility with which they come to him. But in contrast, the rich person, Jesus says, woe to you because you've received your consolation. So the rich here is the opposite of the poor in spirit. And so this is the person who doesn't see any need for God. Kind of like the church in Revelation that says, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And so arrogantly assuming that they're going to be fine in the judgment, this person pursues the things of the world over God. He stores up his treasures here on earth, not in heaven. So again, you can kind of see the connection between spiritual richness and economic riches. And we see illustrations of that throughout this gospel in the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 and uh, even in the rich man from Luke chapter 16. This is the person who is self-satisfied and content with just the riches of this world. That's what their heart is set on. And Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you because you've received your consolation. It was a legal term that meant that a transaction was paid in full. Right? Like, like you have no more payments coming. You would see this on a receipt. And so you've received your consolation in the sense that the wealth and the riches that you've pursued in this life above God, that's all you're going to get. And like you got what you wanted, but that's all that you're going to get. It's like what Shilin once said. If you're living your best life now, you're headed to hell. And it's exactly what Abraham tells the rich man in Luke 16. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Like you've got them all. You've received your consolation. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation let's also note this, that these are not fixed states, at least in this life. As in a person under this woe, if they genuinely repent and come to Christ, well, they can escape that wrath to come and instead come under blessing. How do we know that? Well, exhibit A is Zacchaeus. Once an enemy of God, who clearly showed his disregard for God's law in the way that he cheated and he extorted and he manipulated people in his tax collecting. And as a result, he became very, very rich. Woe to you who are rich. But he came to Christ in humility, in spiritual poverty, knowing that he's a wretched sinner in need of grace, in need of salvation. And he repented and he believed. And so his woe became a blessing. Blessed are you who are poor. Right? Poor in spirit like Zacchaeus. So pair number one is poor and rich. Pair number two is hungry and full. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Again, this can't only be referring to literal hunger and literal fullness. Otherwise it's a very strange thing that Jesus does in miraculously feeding the hungry multitudes to the point that they ate and were satisfied. Now this too has a spiritual dimension. What Matthew records as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so this is the person whose desire to be right with God His desire to be made righteous, that just dominates his life. Kind of like when you're hungry, that just dominates your life. It it drives you to do whatever you need to do to satiate that hunger. In the same way, the person who hungers like this for God, who hungers like this for righteousness, they're going to do whatever it takes. They're going to seek after God hard until they're finally satisfied with the bread of life. It's like Jacob wrestling with the angel. I will not let you go until you bless me. We see this metaphor of spiritual hunger and spiritual satisfaction in Psalm 63. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And what does God do for the one who hungers and thirsts for him in that way? Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Or Psalm 107, he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul, he fills, he satiates with good things. Or the New Testament equivalent, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. But in contrast, those who are full now. And really the imagery is very similar to the rich from the previous pair. This is the person who says that they are satisfied. They have no need for God. They're good. Well, Jesus says, Woe to you. Blessed are the poor and hungry. Woes to the rich and the full. Like, Jesus, that that is pretty radical. But if you've been here since the beginning of the book of Luke... You've actually heard this before. You remember Mary's Magnificat, where Jesus' mother referred to just many of the same themes. Luke 1, and 53, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Pair number two, hungry and full. Prayer number three, weeping and laughing. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. God's people are pictured here as weeping. Weeping because of sin. Weeping because of the effects of sin. Weeping because of their own sin. Weeping because of the sin of others especially the persecution and the hatred that are going to come upon them that's going to be mentioned next. Because God is not worshipped as he ought to be, because God is not glorified in this life as he ought to be, well, God's people weep and mourn. Now, this doesn't mean that God's people are always like melancholy and always depressed, that they always weep. No, there's a time to weep and there's a, a time to laugh, but at the same time, God's people understand the reality and the gravity and the sadness of sin and living in a sin-cursed world. And so there is a certain sobriety and a sober-mindedness and seriousness that the world just doesn't get. And if you think about it, that's to be expected. If you're going to follow, a man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. Blessed are you who weep now. For you shall laugh. Heaven, on the other hand, is going to be full of joy and love and laughter. But in contrast, the wicked, well, they laugh now. And again, that's not referring to like laughing at a good joke or laughing at joyful providences or anything like that, that the godly would also partake in. This is referring to a scornful, dismissive and mocking laughter that takes lightly the things of God. Maybe even a a flippant and frivolous, carefree laughter that doesn't consider the weightiness of the things of God. This is the opposite of the, the mourning and weeping of a believer. And again, it's related to being rich and being full. It's this myopic contentment and satisfaction with this life, right? The life in this world that then leads them to dismiss eternal things and just mock and laugh at them. Those whose lives are characterized by that kind of laughing, well, they shall mourn and they shall weep. And so Jesus says, Woe to the one whose eternal destiny is that weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pair three is weeping and laughing, and pair four is persecuted and celebrated. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And nobody, nobody wants us to be hated. I think we would all prefer to be spoken well of. But Jesus is very clear, and the New Testament is very clear, That for his sake, on account of the Son of Man, disciples are going to suffer negative social consequences. Like, there's going to be people who hate you. There's going to be people who exclude you. Whether that's social ostracism or being kicked out of the synagogue for them or being blacklisted by the family. There's going to be people who revile you. There's going to be people who spurn your name as evil. Think about that one. So in doing the good and godly thing in submitting to Christ, your name becomes evil. This is not saying that Christians ought to then go out and seek bad reputations. No, elders need to be well thought of by outsiders. The early church, we're told in Acts, had favor with all the people. But the key phrase there is on account of the Son of Man. It's on account of you like how you live and how you conduct yourself and how you treat others and how you speak and act, well, you as a believer need to be above reproach. If you're just a a mean and unlikable person and that's why you're hated and reviled, that's on you, There's no blessing with that. But if it's on account of the Son of Man, like when you do something in faithful obedience to Jesus that is unpopular or that is gonna draw hatred and reviling from others, when following Jesus is what leads to the ostracism, what Matthew records as being persecuted for righteousness' sake, well then, then you're blessed. The apostle Peter most definitely was present when Jesus said all of this. And look at how he picks up on the same idea in his letter, 1 Peter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God... Rest upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, translation, on the account of the Son of Man, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So if you're reviled for Jesus' sake, as counterintuitive as it might seem, you are blessed. And so Jesus says, rejoice in that day leap for joy. But why? Like, like why rejoice in the face of something seemingly so unpleasant as persecution and hatred? Well, Jesus gives us two reasons. One, because your reward is great in heaven. So, looking at the weight of eternal glory as a funny way of making all of your persecutions seem like a light momentary affliction. But second, consider your company. The people who were persecuting you, well, in the same way, their fathers persecuted the prophets who came before you. Uh, the, the Jeremiah's and the Elijah's and the Zechariah's, or God's righteous people have throughout history suffered for his name. And so you're in good company. You are not unique in your situation. You're right in line with the godly who came before you. So rejoice and leap for joy. Unless you think that's kind of overkill, a little bit unrealistic. Well, remember their apostles, right? Remember the apostles? They're beaten on account of the Son of Man. And you remember what they did? Acts 5, they left the presence of the council after being beaten for Jesus, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And how else do you explain singing hymns in the middle of the night in a Philippian jail? Rejoice, leap for joy. But on the other hand, Woe to you when people speak well of you. For their fathers did the same to the false prophets. Again, wisdom requires some caveats there. It's not people speaking well of you in general that's so bad. Otherwise, it's kind of counterproductive for the New Testament to tell us to encourage one another and build one another up. This is referring to being spoken well of because you're going against the will of God. And we can be sure that that's what Jesus meant because of who he compares them to. The false prophets. The false prophets, they lied on behalf of God. They prophesied falsely. They, they tickled ears. And for that, they were well spoken of. They were loved. They were celebrated. Jeremiah 5. The prophets prophesy falsely. False prophets. And the priests rule at their discretion. My people love to have it so. Right? They were celebrated and loved because they were false prophets. But Jesus says, woe to such people. Just like the rich, right? They've received their full reward just in the praises of men that they've already received. When you suffer and you're hated because of obedience to Jesus, you're blessed. When you're celebrated and loved because of disobedience to Jesus, woe to you. It's parent number four. Persecuted. And celebrated. So that's our beatitudes, our our woes. We'll pick it up here uh, from this sermon next time. Uh, let me leave you now with just two brief points of application as we finish up. Application point number one is that the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. I think this is so important for us to note right now, because like, we've been talking a lot about poverty and hunger and weeping and being hated, like all of these being the marks of God's people, things that characterize citizens of the kingdom of God. But we never want to get the horse, or the cart rather, in front of the horse, right, thinking that those things in and of themselves are what save us. Like spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty is essential. It is important. But spiritual poverty in and of itself cannot save your soul. It cannot pay for your sin. Being persecuted for righteousness' sake, like as clear a marker as that is of one's faithfulness and obedience to God, of where their treasure lies, being persecuted for righteousness' sake cannot atone for your sin. Because our salvation is really not about us at all or what we do at all. It's about Jesus and what he's done for us. And so we've been talking about the poor. But our salvation lies not primarily in our poverty. It lies in his poverty. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And we've been talking about hunger, but again, it's not our hungering and thirsting for righteousness that saves us. Our salvation lies in the fact that Jesus took upon himself all of the weaknesses of our human frame, including, of course, hunger. So on the cross, he says, I thirst. We've been talking about weeping. We'll consider that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears in Gethsemane as he prepared to bear the wrath of God that we deserved. We've been talking about being hated and spurned and reviled. Well, no man ever had to suffer that unjustly more than Jesus. Why does he endure all that? Why? For sinners like us. Those who trust in him would go from being under this eternal woe because of our sin, because of the righteous punishment that our sin deserves, and now move to being under eternal blessing being united to the Son of God and all of his perfections, right? Going from being under the judgment of our sin to being truly and freely forgiven. And So if today you are not a Christian, I tell you that the gospel is of first importance and that you can be saved today not primarily by what you do but by what Christ has done for you. And if you are a Christian... I tell you also that the gospel is of first importance. That we ought never to forget that our only means to be right with the holy God is what Jesus has done for us. Application point number one, the gospel is of first importance. Application point number two is to value the right things. Value the right things. This is kind of a summary of everything that we've been talking about just how as God's people, we need to value things correctly. Friends, we live in a culture that blindly chases after the very things. Riches, fullness, laughter, reputation. Right? Those very things that Jesus pronounces woes upon. We live in a culture that admires and follows people who have achieved those things at any spiritual expense. And being even more specific, right, in our context, we live in a city that more than most other places you could live, like that prizes and exalts these very things. Like people move to New York City from all over the world to pursue these very things that Jesus says will bring woe to their soul. And So we need to hear this sermon. Now, I'm not talking about my sermon. I'm talking about Jesus' sermon. Right? We need God to give us the ears that we need to hear this sermon because we need to be constantly like, recalibrating and reorienting our value system. Especially in light of the world that we live in, all of its influences always barraging our soul. We need to hear this sermon that we might value the right things. I want to close by looking real quick at Psalm 73. Turn there in your Bibles. This psalm is a fascinating parallel to our text from Luke. Because the people that Asaph describes, like the wicked that he's tempted to envy in the psalm, they fit the description of those upon whom Jesus is pronouncing woe, like almost perfectly. Look at Psalm 73.3, right? They're rich. Woe to the rich. They're rich. Asaph says they prosper. And they're full, Psalm 73, 4. Asaph says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And they're laughing, Psalm 73, 7. Their hearts overflow with follies. And the cherry on top, all men speak well of them, Psalm seventy three ten. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And all of that almost wrecks Asaph. Like, seeing all those people who hate God, the arrogant and the wicked, seemingly prosper like this, it almost wrecks him. And so he cries out in despair, verse 13, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Like, why am I wasting my time seeking after God? Sometimes we, we see the world around us, and we see the ungodly prosper, and we see where we Uh, Even in our genuine pursuit of the things of God, where we are in relation to them, at least on these outside measures, well, we begin to get discouraged, or even, like Asaph, go to utter despair. But Asaph turns the corner when God gives him eyes to see, right, to value the right things. Verses 16 and 17, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be, to me, a wearisome task. Like, I don't get it until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then, God gave my eyes, then I discerned their end. It's only when God gives him eyes to see exactly what Jesus would say in this sermon a thousand years later that he finally gets it. That the wicked, no matter how life might seem for them on the outside, they're not blessed. No, they're under woe. For in their pursuit of achievement, well, all that this world has to offer, well, in that pursuit, they have spurned God. And so not only should they not be envied, they should be pitied. Because unless they repent, they will likewise perish. But in contrast, God's people, Regardless of outward circumstances, God's people are blessed. So Asaph is a perfect illustration of this application point, right? That we need to value the right things and also a perfect illustration of the idea that God must be the one who graciously opens our eyes to that truth. And Asaph's conclusion in this psalm, well, may be ours as well as we seek to value these right things. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. Father, we thank you for these challenging words from our Lord. We pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, Lord, that we might indeed have eyes to see its truths, And by the grace of your Holy Spirit, apply it to our lives. Father, we pray especially for those in this room who do not know Christ as Lord. That today you would do the miraculous, regenerating work of salvation. That they would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior even today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.